Well, good morning, everybody, uh, and welcome to uh, Buck Senior Care Group. Soon to be announcements, drum roll, please. We're gonna be calling ourselves the Bucks Philly Senior Care Group. We decided to expand and absorb into the Philly area as well since Philly Network Connections is no longer. So, hey, we're just gonna eat them up, you know? So um, certainly invite your friends. So we're gonna expand our area to a little bit more. And I wanna thank um, two co-hosts, most of you already know me, uh, Donna Deshuk from Roscoff Law Group. And then we got John Freetag from All American. Hey, John. And so, there she is, there's Desiree. She says she's a little square now. Uh, Desiree Craiger from Premier. So we all just, um, we enjoy each other's company, but they put me in charge today, so you're in trouble. Uh, so I wanted to, because it's gonna be jam packed, I'm gonna uh, first of all thank Dr. Spector uh, for coming to join us today. Dr. Spector is an intern um, medicine specialist with over 27 years of experience. In, um, in the medical field. And he's put together a great slide presentation for us that's going to educate us on COVID and the vaccine. So we're really lucky to have him. So I don't wanna take up all the time with me and make sure to switch it over to him so he can do his presentation. Thank you, Dr. Spector. Uh, you're welcome, Donna. Thank you very much. Uh, good morning. And uh, thank you, Rothkopf Group, Premier, and All American Hospice for giving me the opportunity to interact with everybody. All right, so why don't we get started? So I know it's early in the morning. Some have had kids go to school. So I thought I'd wake everybody up who maybe hasn't had their favorite beverage and just use your mind and ask you for the next 10 seconds, what do you see here? Oh, you're not sharing your screen yet. Oh. So we always see you. Uh-oh. John, did you put them on spotlight? Because I'm not sure if you can do spotlight and share screen at the same time. I did, but I took them off of spotlight, so. Yes. Hmm. I'm in the Zoom. I'm in PowerPoint. Do you want me to get out or? Um, on the bottom of your screen, Doc, it should have a share screen like. Yeah, in, I don't. In Zoom part. Little green, little should be in green, green arrow. Yeah, I knew this was going to be technical difficult. Yeah, already we already practiced. All right, here we go. Share screen. Oh, that's not it. My that's fault. It? No, that's, that's the it. wrong one. <laughs> oh, okay. That's all right. New share. Oh, where did it go? Just click your other um to the left to the screen that you want to be on. Yeah, I already started sharing. He might have to stop the screen share first, though, and then restart it. Okay, why don't I do that? And I had it up. Everyone's a maven here. Everyone knows what to do. We'll have a thousand. Oh my gosh! I reasons. <laughs> it's all right. If you can't get it, then I, I can always screen share mine too. Yeah, if you don't mind, I'm sorry. I had it up and everything was ready. It says only one can share at a time, so you have to stop screen sharing. Oh, boy. Okay. So good. <laughs> How do I? Oh, my gosh. John, you're the host. You can do that. Let me see. You can override it. Here, I, I did multiple. Can you do it now? Yep. 
Okay. All right, thank you. All right. All right, we ready? All right. So you just want me to, I'll just tell you next screen. There we go. All right. So now everybody's all woken up and ready to go. So what do you see? I saw a duck. A duck. Oh, rabbit first. All right. So we see a rabbit and a duck. This is from 1892 in Germany. And basically all this says is that if you can see both, then you are more creative than others. So if you saw both the rabbit and the duck, then you are a very creative person and congratulations. Awesome. So, all right, so mainly a lot of the times when I give lectures or I'm on a call, I always like to know who the presenter is. So who am I? Well, I'm a son, proud son of a senior citizen father. He's 82, he's a physician as well who has had a lot of difficulties with COVID. This, believe it or not, was in 2018 when we went to London to see the Eagles play the Jacksonville Jaguars. And as you see, no masks. And it was uh, very fun, but a long time ago and a lot of things have changed. I am also a proud father who has two children that one's in college who hasn't seen his campus and one's in high school who went to a new high school and basically went there for one week and they're having difficulties as well. And the most important part of this slide is that we went to the Super Bowl with my dad and my children barely get any time to see my dad because he's concerned of course with the virus and so are they giving it to their grandfather. Who am I? I am a practicing clinician that goes to five different uh, skilled nursing facilities and see how our patients are trying to communicate with our families. This picture, believe it or not, was around September when all of us were discussing how we can do open visitation. And again, it seems like years ago that we could have even thought about open visitation because the numbers are just so high that we can't even have our, our families communicate with their loved ones. Next slide. Yep. So that's Jean's Hospital. I am a practicing physician for Temple University Hospital. And over the last 18 years, if you go to the next slide, you'll see a lot of my credentials. But the most important down below are what I've done recently in the last six months as the physician lead for Penn and Temple. And as you see down there, there's acronyms called the RICP and the RCAT. So if you want to go to the next slide, what I've done over the last six months as the Temple physician lead is... Next slide. The RICB is a program that was a project mission that came about from the state to save lives by supporting long-term care facilities with tangible resources and during a healthcare crisis, one that we've never seen before. What the RICB was, was a, a grant overview here of $175 million from the CARES Act that was oversighted by the Department of Human Services for a span of six months. And we actually went to December 30th. And what was our goal was to assist residents of long-term care facilities by providing COVID-19 related supports. And I'll go through this program very quickly, just so you all know, and some of you on this call have interacted with me. I have been the Bucks County lead as well as Philadelphia, and I've met with the Bucks County Department of Health, as well as the Philadelphia Department of Health uh, bi-weekly for the last six months to help those health departments understand what's going on in their community, uh, especially long-term care. So how did we get here? 
Next slide. Let's go through a little history here. All of us remember when we first heard about COVID in January and our first facility was out in Washington in February of 2020. This was Kirkland, which was a 130 bed facility with 180 staff. And as you see, two weeks later, they had 81 residents with COVID, 29 deaths and 54 patients were sent to the hospital. This is important because back then there were no guidelines, no testing and no PPE. And it showed if we do nothing, this is exactly what we're gonna have with this virus. Building number two is Andover. This was a different situation a few weeks later this was difficult patients with memory care issues, post-incarceration, dementia. They actually had insufficient PPE, insufficient medical care, and had a failure of infection control. They had 70 patients die, and it wasn't all their fault. They had no support from their state, and ultimately what we found was that advice is not enough and that the nursing homes need support. Building number three, this was the perfect storm page, uh, building, which was run by a Harvard doctor. He locked down the facility in March, no visitors, no group dining, temperature and symptom screens like we're doing now. He did everything possible. And actually he was ready to be a COVID sniff and he was going to move all his negative patients out, which he thought. On April 1st, they did a point prevalence survey, no symptomatic patients in the facility and they found 97 residents 52 out of the 97 tested positive within the first time. And by April 5th, another 31. And by total, 83 out of 97 residents tested positive. Next slide. What you'll see is that massive community spread leads to massive nursing home outbreaks, regardless of what you do. Symptom screens fail to detect asymptomatic spread and you need more and more testing. PPE does work because this facility had no deaths. Why do I bring these three facilities? Because it led us to Renaissance with my friend, Dr. Josh Wee. Back in March, he was the first facility in the Philadelphia area and very similar to uh, Dr. Pugh in, in Harvard. Uh, Dr. Wee took a hold of this and found his first resident and diagnosed on March 20th. He started universal face mask, eye protection, but within eight days, he had 20 positive residents. And by April 3rd, it spread into two other wings. As you'll see from the diagram on the next few slides, he started with one resident with a fever and one resident that went to the ICU. Literally eight days later, you'll see how it spread. Next slide. Uh, it spread and as you see there, now we had three in the ICU, one on a medical floor, four deceased and three more with fevers. And on the last slide here, you'll see that it took no less than 14 days for the first case. And if you do one more slide, you'll see he instituted universal masking on the 23rd and had a whole building spread on April 3rd. This is April. What I will tell you that now that I'm in uh, January with the Rigby program, I saw this throughout the summer, fall and early winter. I saw facilities that had no patients positive in early spring that had a very tough time in the fall. One facility had no uh, spread or no patients up until around September. And within three weeks, they had 71 out of 73 positives with 11 deaths. The whole point is, is that we learned from these historical buildings, but we're still dealing with the same problems, which is lack of PPE, lack of guidance, and we need to work together. Next slide.
As you see, testing in PPE can extinguish an outbreak. Next slide. So what did the RICPE offer our facility partners up until December 30th? We had accessibility, a 24-7 call center, site visit consultation. We hired between the Penn and Temple team 20 social workers and nurses that came out to facilities, and we actually performed site visits where we would educate how to use PPE, Don and Doc, how to use zoning, how to help with testing. We provided staff testing as well as opportunities with PPE. We worked with our collaborators. Next slide. And we educated on our favorite PA Hans. Hopefully everybody on this call understands that the Health Alert Network is where the state is giving us ideas of their experience with the CDC and coming up with some of the uh, guidance that we use today. And we'll go through some of these more in some future slides. Here's our full activity report from July to December 30th. You'll see that we, um, we had urgent facilities during an outbreak. And if you look on the right side, you'll see our numbers. And remarkably, we had over 100 site visits. We had 810 site visits or consultations, 407 PPE provisioning to the facilities. We did fit testing and 95s. Remarkably, we didn't have to do a lot of flu vaccinations because a lot of the facilities were able to do that, which will bring us to our COVID vaccination discussion. And uh, we met 120 times with the local health department and I'm still meeting with the Bucks County and Philadelphia County Department of Health. Next slide. Up until January 1st, you'll see that our outbreaks were pretty much consistent with what you saw in the country. Back in December 4th, which was right after the surge for Thanksgiving, we had a maximum of 23. But believe it or not, in January 1st, we still had 10 outbreaks that we were dealing with. This problem is still occurring, and I hate to say it, but we're still going to have more outbreaks because of Christmas and because of New Year's. We're going to have probably up until the end of February. A project mission, as I stated before, was to save lives. And I feel that our, our RICP program, which is now the RCAP program, which is a little uh, less support, the state has decided to take the staffing, the testing, and the PPE away from the RICP program. But we are still there hand in hand with all of our facilities. I do feel that the RICP program did, uh, during a healthcare crisis, save lives. All right, so what I'd like to do is uh, be interactive. I know I don't have access to the chat, but I didn't know if anybody had any questions with the uh, RCAT or the RICPE program uh, that I, we can answer real quick. Dr. Specter, what is, uh, what is the RICPE program stand for? Is that an acronym? Yes, and I had it on one of the slides. If you're able to go back, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, all right. Um, the regional, keep on going, my fault. This one, no? Nope, keep on going. Back. I don't know how far back. Uh, yeah, keep on going. There, there it is. Nope, uh, nope, that's Renaissance. It's right when I introduced myself. Uh, one more, one more. There we go, the Regional Response Health Collaborative Program. And I did write down what the RCAT now is, which is the Regional Congregate Care Assistance Team. 
And again, this was uh, done by the state to help us interact with all of our facilities. I interacted with 130 facilities in my six months. Uh-oh, gonna give us a stroke. <laughs> what caused the state to cut the funding? So unfortunately, the government did not give any further care money to the program. But thank goodness for the state of Pennsylvania, they decided to take internally finances. And uh, this was, I think, 14 health systems across the state. So it wasn't just us. It was um, Penn, Jefferson, UM, uh, UMPC, the Pittsburgh, Lehigh Valley, they all were involved as well. And they are now using their own internal money to do uh, what we were doing back then, but it was for governmental. Dr. Spector, can I, is there, so it, there still is a lot of outbreaks, but wearing the PPE and being more cautious is slowing down the, the how sick people are getting, or is that because the viruses mutate? What, what's causing less, less deaths, but the same kinds of giant numbers in these facilities? Sure, so why don't we, that's a great lead into, uh, so here's my, uh, I'll take care of that answer. Uh, when we go. So everybody hopefully saw that you saw a young woman and an old woman on that last uh, mental break there. Mm -hmm. Everybody sees it? Yep. All right. So let's talk about the virus because that really leads us into that great question. So this is a picture of the virus. And this is the most important picture that you'll look at today where you'll see the spike protein that you've seen on the left side there in the red. And then internally is the RNA, which is the virus material that the virus uses to get into your body and cause all the sickness. Next slide. This is a busy slide, but if you look up in the right corner, you'll see a normal lung tissue, the alveolus. And then below that, you'll see the SARS-CoV-2 structure, which is a virus and how it gets into the lung. How does it get into the lung? Through an ACE2 receptor. You're gonna hear that a lot today with my lecture and you can, you've heard it a lot. ACE2 receptors are throughout the body. Once that virus particle gets inside the body with the ACE2, it marriages up like a lock and key. It then opens up that RNA material that then starts to spread. And down below you'll see moderate and severe and this is the sickness that we're seeing. And you can see the fluid and the inflammation that causes with an immune response from the virus versus the immune response from our body, which takes a lot of time to occur, which is when we're gonna talk about the vaccine. Here's a generic picture of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein marrying itself to the ACE2. Once that lock and key happens, it opens up in that viral entry and replication then goes into the cell body. This is a 3D picture of the, of the the spike protein, which is the most important protein that we talk about because all the vaccines deal with this. You'll see the different colors. The different colors are actually one protein wrapped around the spike protein three times. The SARS-CoV-2 virus has 29 proteins full of amino acids. So when you talk about mutations, which we'll talk later, that's a, a mutation is a change in the amino acid with the genetic assay. The important part of this is that this is one protein out of the 29. This gives us the ability to vaccinate and to protect. So what happens with SARS-CoV-2? Why is it so important and why is it so deadly? Well, in 2003, we had SARS-CoV-1, 
and we found that 8,000 people were killed with over a six-month period. But what we found was SARS-CoV-2 binds to our cells 10 to 20 times more tightly to human cells than the SARS-CoV-1. So you can understand what happens. And here what happens is that H2 receptor binds to the viral particle, allowing it to open up. This is a cartoon picture of what happens. And most of you know ACE inhibitors and ARB drugs are known as hypertensive medicines. But what happens is when we downregulate that ACE2 receptor, we cause more of a hormonal surge with angiotensin II that causes more of a high blood pressure, organ damage, lung inflammation, and leaky vessels. So you can see that how this ACE2 receptor is so important with this virus, causing the destruction and death and what we see when we see the ICU numbers so high. So what are the signs and symptoms that we see in our elderly and even in our young? So we see anosmia, which is the loss of smell. And the reason that we have anosmia is because we have a lot of ACE2 in our nose. As you see in South Korea, 30% of people who tested positive for the virus lost their smell. I had the COVID virus in November. I thought I could smell fine because I was able to smell my mask and some of the smells of coffee and, and food. But believe it or not, recently when I went out with my children, they uh, smelled some fertilizer and I did not. So I can tell you that up to 85% of all patients have some sort of loss of smell. It is a sign that we need to use between a vaccine side effect versus the COVID too. And it will come back within six months. It is not a neurological problem. It is actually more of a nasal congestion and sign and symptom of the disease, but it is not a permanent loss of smell. Here's the big thing that I learned very hard in the memory care unit in March and April in some of my facilities. They weren't having respiratory problems. They were having GI problems. They were having mental problems and confusion. And the reason they were having GI problems, again, is that ACE2 receptor is a large amount in our small intestines. And we were seeing diarrhea, and we were trying to find what's causing this diarrhea. C. diff, we had to have, it was a C. diff outbreak, and actually it wasn't. It was SARS-CoV-2. And in the memory care unit and back in April and May, and even now, we're having difficulty trying to cohort patients in a unit where they're not used to being cohorted. And the GI spread was just remarkable. We're still seeing this, so I do tell you, with loss of smell and GI problems, this will help you understand if you have an outbreak in your facility. Reinfection, as you know, in the media has come up. Believe it or not, we can be reinfected with this significant virus. You are protected up until around six months. Studies have shown that 85% of people who have been infected have antibodies up until eight months. The problem is, that as we discussed, there is a mutation. And we found that at least in America, there's been four reinfections. And when I say reinfections, these are different genetic makeup of the SARS-CoV-2 that can reinfect you and have signs and symptoms. So this is important because when you are testing in facilities, and as you know, the guidelines, which we're gonna go over are twice a week in most facilities because we're over 10% in the community. If you tested negative, after 90 days, and then you test positive on a universal screening, we have to treat those residents as reinfection. The reinfections are usually not as harsh of an illness, 
but we still have to do the cohorting and the zoning and the isolation for these uh, reinfections. And we will continue with the mutations that we're gonna go over, continue to see reinfection. So the RICB program taught me a lot about testing. So I know that is the bane of a lot of existence of a lot of our SNPs. Everybody is having something put up their nose at least twice a week for the last two months. So let's talk about testing and why it's important. This is the early warning dashboard that everybody should be looking at once a week and then twice um, every other week based on the percentages that are in your county. That is what's guiding us to test all of our residents. As you see, as of last Friday, the state was still 14.4%. That means that we still have to test all of our staff twice a week and our residents if there's an outbreak once a week. And below, you'll see that the Philadelphia rate was 10%. This is the guidance, the QSO 20-38NH that came out on August 26th that stated that based on our community spread and knowing that our workers in our facilities work from the community, that if the community spread is above 10% in long-term care facilities, we must go twice a week. As you see in the right-hand corner, hopefully we'll get down to less than 10%. I don't predict that until probably the end of February. We're close right now, but unfortunately, we're probably gonna have another surge that is going to continue this twice a week. So back in uh, September and October, we were at a medium rate, which was once a week. And our goal, of course, is less than 5%. We will not go to zero, but we will be once a month. This is for our SNF partners. What I found from the RICPE program is that the Department of Health, Human Health Services had different guidance for our personal care homes than our long-term care facilities. So if you go to the next slide, you'll see that this was from the Department of Human Services, and they actually have different guidance because they are not from the Department of Health. And you'll see that a low spread for them, testing is not recommended for asymptomatic residents, and testing for staff was already up to six weeks. Substantial, if you see greater than 10%, you should be doing testing of any residents that are going out and encourage staff members once a week. But we found through the RICBI program that we were unable to mandate testing in personal care homes because there is no payment structure from the Department of Human Health Services that personal care homes could technically do what they want. And that unfortunately, as we saw, caused more outbreaks and more difficulties. So this was one of the guidance problems that we had. This is the guidance of testing following a new outbreak. So say you have a patient that turned positive or a staff member, you have to cont continue to repeat testing in all residents for 14 days until you have a negative outcome. Unfortunately, in most facilities right now, they are continuing to have outbreaks. And when I say an outbreak, that is one or that is 20 or 40, we have come in for the ones that have higher outbreaks, the 20, the 30s, and we have helped with zoning, PP, and staffing. But again, this is probably not gonna be going away anytime soon, because as we know, residents are testing positive all the time. You scratch your head and you try to do contact tracing, but sometimes you just can't find where the cause was. I will tell you that you are not to test any resident who has been positive for 90 days because as we found out, they can be negative one time and positive another time. 
So here's what our gold standard is. And when I say gold standard, it's only 85% gold standard. This is our NP or oropharyngeal swab that everybody is doing. You collect it, you spin it, you get an RNA extraction, and then you get a test result of a positive or negative within five hours to 48 hours. As you see in the right, the way it works is that when it's, it's spun down, you have what they call a cycle threshold time, which is 40,000 cycles that we do. So we do 40 cycles, which gives us 40,000 cycle threshold. The lower the number, the more infected you are. So if you were to look at the cycle threshold and it was five, that means it only took five cycles for this to person to be tested positive. If it's over 40 cycles and you are negative, then it is minimal amount of disease and it's not uh, clinically relevant. So this is the PCR that we're all doing. This is the Binex card. There are two antigen tests out there that we're doing in the facilities. These should only be used for rapid tests where we know that there's an outbreak and we wanna know because what happens is, as I'll show later, the antigen is a response to the antibody from your body. That antigen usually is prevalent five to seven days into symptomatic residents or patients or persons. If you are asymptomatic, this test is not great. So I am seeing a lot of facilities using these COVID-19 Binex cards, and there is two other machines, the Sophia and the BD Veritor, but they are close to 20% false negative. You really do not want to be using this unless it is an absolute needed outbreak. On these cards, you'll see, and you know, <clears throat> we'll keep this up. On this card, you'll see uh, there's a sample card and a, and a control, and I have seen the control turn positive within 30 seconds of those that are positive. Next slide. Here is the, uh, the again, the character of the virus, and you'll see that spike protein and RNA. So that spike protein and our antibodies marry each other up and then that antigen forms and that is what you see on that card. But again, we really do not wanna be using this for universal screening. Next slide. And the reason we don't is because of this study that was done in the uh, Mortality and Morbidity Weekly Report from Wisconsin, September to October, they did mass screening for the antigen Binex cards and this was for the SOFIA. And we found that over 40 to 50% of asymptomatic residents or staff members were not picked up by that antigen card. So I know some facilities based on cost prohibitive doing the PCRs that they are using those antigen cards, but I will tell you that you could be missing up to 40% of staff that could be positive in your facility. So that's me and the PPE. So let's go to our PPE discussion. So what we have PPE is we have three different zones in our facilities. We have a green zone. That is where no residents or staff have had a 14 day exposure. What is required by our state guidance, mask and universal shields are mandatory everywhere we go, regardless of the zone you are in. This is because those ACE2 receptors are in our nose and in our eyes. So believe it or not, my first experience with COVID was when back in April, we had in one of my facilities, myself and the infection preventionist going around to some people that had low grade fevers. And we went in, I was fully PPE'd as you saw in that picture with my shield and mask. 
And my infection preventionist did the swab in a patient who had no symptoms but a low-grade fever. And as soon as she put the swab up the nose, the resident sneezed. She sneezed right in the face of my IP. And I looked over and she did not have her shield on. Within three days, she was symptomatic and she was the first positive that we had in our facility. The shield is just as important as the mask. I can't say that many times. As many times as I say it, I continue to see break areas where people are not wearing their shields. In my facilities, I walk around and I actually ask people to wear their shield when they're eating because the most recent outbreaks that we've seen have been in our break areas where people are congregating or breaks without shields. The shield is just as important as the mask. Next slide. Our yellow zone is our exposure zone or our new admit zone. Back in, back in April, our yellow zone patients we thought were safer than our red zone patients because we thought admissions were fine from the hospital. But what we're finding out now is that we're having outbreaks in hospitals. And unfortunately, the hospitals are not having the ability to test everybody. So now what we're doing is we're getting a 72-hour pre-admission test that's negative from the hospital. And then I'm recommending within five days you do another swab because we are seeing a lot of residents turn positive in new admissions, and I call them high orange or low red. Yellow zone is PPE is the same, except for we need to now wear gloves and gowns with all patient care interactions. Our next slide will be our red zone. That's our positive residents. As you see, there is no difference other than our monitoring between our yellow and red. But what I will tell you the difference is, if you go to our next slide, is the guidance from the state. And I know a lot of you are gonna shake your head when I say this, but the state believes we are still, and the CDC, in conventional capacity. What does that mean? It means that you have enough PPE for all of your staff members that you will be changing gowns between interactions. That means if you have a CNA, you have a home health worker, you have uh, a nurse, you have physical therapy, you have social workers, you have pastoral care, they have to change their PPE within our interaction. Yes, you will have 40 different changes of PPE within one patient shift. But that is what conventional capacity means. And when we are in conventional and we are in a yellow zone, you must change your gown between each interaction between each patient. When you see crisis, that's the red. That means you can change between shift. That's where you can hang up your gown in the room. We can advocate that in a red zone only if we are in crisis capacity where you are not having the ability to have PPE. I recommend reusable for those that have laundry on or off site. And our RICBI program still has PPE and so does the state. And if you use reusable, it really helps you uh, get through the day without burning through your disposable. I do not recommend disposable except for an outbreak situation and disposable does have to be used in a crisis situation. PPE does work. Why does it work? Because our flu numbers are ridiculously low, only 10 in the city of Philadelphia, and our C. diff numbers are also very low. So PPE does work, but it has to be done in the right manner. All right, let's talk about isolation and exposure. 
The difference between, in my mind, isolation and exposure, isolation is where we actually have somebody positive and we have our 10-day isolation period. Exposure is where somebody has actually been exposed to somebody who has the virus. That is a 14-day quarantine. I have this up here because if we all remember a few weeks ago, the CDC lowered us to a seven-day uh, exposure guidance, meaning that if in seven days you can have a negative test, you can go back to work without a negative test and no symptoms, and you were exposed, you can go back to work in 10 days. Unfortunately, as you see on the right-hand side, this is not for our long-term care facility or healthcare workers. It is still a 14-day quarantine. And the last thing I want to talk about is that, that parent healthcare worker who has to take care of their children. If your child is positive for 10 days, your quarantine will not start until their last day of your exposure. That means that you will be out for 24 days, 10 days during your exposure time with your child and another 14 days for your own quarantine. So a 24 day max, if you are unable to separate from your family, I was lucky enough back in November to separate from my family. So where are we now? This is the latest uh, from January 1st. As you see, our numbers are on our way down. But unfortunately, yesterday we had over 10,000 cases in the state of Pennsylvania. So our seven-day moving average is going to go up. As you see, December 6th is when we maxed out other than back in April. And I'm not confident that we're going to see these low numbers again. I think we're going to have another surge that may actually be worse in the next two to three weeks. So let's go to treatment. I know a lot of us are talking about treatment. So next slide are two treatment options for our elderly and, and for all of us out there. Go back to our ACE2. Oh, yep, you can go to that one. Next slide, yep. So our ACE2 receptor, this lock and key with the spike protein. This is where we want to bind to. I'm sorry. At me? Is there a question? No, I unmuted. Maybe that was me. Oh, no problem. So what we do, and we'll talk about this real quick with the vaccine and monoclonal antibodies, is we want to bind to this spike protein outside of the body. So if we bind to the outside of the body to the viral cell, that RNA of the virus does not get into our body. Next slide. All right, so this is what we have to offer uh, in our SNFs and our long-term care facilities. And my RICP program uh, has a, the ability to come in and give an infusion of vanlamivab, uh, which is a monoclonal antibody that, as you see, the monoclonal antibody is injected for one hour and it binds to the spike protein. This monoclonal antibody will allow decrease of hospitalization, and it decreases the ability of the virus to get out into the cytoplasm of our human cell and start infecting us. Because as we know, our innate uh, immune system takes time to make antibodies. If you look at the next slide, you'll see that what it is, it's an approved EUA. It's infused over one hour, one dose. Here's the issue. If you get the monoclonal antibody, 
you are unable to get the vaccine for 90 days. But what it has done in our program, it has decreased hospitalizations. We've had three out of over 250. So I'll give my email at the end of this program. And if you have positive residents that are 10 days within their positive and they are not on oxygen, we can come out through a pilot program through the government and we can infuse this with the Penn Health System Infusion Company and we can give this to your residents. And it is really the only thing we have to offer because steroids and remdesivir are not given to our elderly in nursing homes. So what else are we gonna do? Well, the vaccine, that's the big thing in the media, right? So the vaccine works on our innate immune system and our adaptive immune system. The innate on the left side is our quick immune system within minutes and hours. If you've had the vaccine already and you've had an, your arm that hurts, that is your innate immune system. That is our cells that you see on your CBC or your neutrophils or eosinophils or mast cells. They go and they attack that lipid that is being injected into your arm and causes an inflammatory reaction. Then the adaptive immune system, which can take up to two weeks, starts making these helper T cells and these B cells and these plasma cells and these memory cells that when we see the virus, we then react to it. So how does the vaccine work? Well, this is outdated actually two days. I did this Sunday and we're already up to 9.7 million doses given to Americans. So how does the vaccine work? Well, the vaccine works right at that spike protein. Basically what the vaccine does is it makes the spike protein, the two vaccines that we have, Moderna and the Pfizer, have RNA. If you look inside that cell, that is RNA. That is the writing mechanism, and it's almost like a postscript note or like an Instagram from what I hear from my kids or Snapchat where you say something and it disappears. That RNA message will disappear in our body within hours to days. But what happens is, is that you're injected with the vaccine and that messenger RNA tells our body to make the spike protein, but it makes a fake spike protein. So our body then reacts to it. And the more spike proteins that are made through the RNA message, the more ability that antibodies are then produced by our adaptive immune system to attach to that spike protein. So then that ACE2 receptor does not get to marry to the virus when it is in our body and then this virus RNA cannot reproduce. So there's the spike protein and the three, the one protein that is wrapped three times around. This is important because as we'll discuss with mutations, we have found that the mutations are not occurring at the spike protein. So this is why the vaccine continues to work with our spike protein methodology. So the good news is, is that the spike protein will continue to be made by our body regardless of mutations and will continue to form antibodies that will fight the virus if it comes into our body. So here is a basic of how our, of how our immune system works with the vaccine. There is the virus with its RNA. As I said, the virus marries to the ACE2 receptor. The virus then releases its own RNA. But what happens if we have the vaccine is our helper cells and our B cells automatically go to that virus 
and they go to that spike protein and they do not let the ability of the virus attach to our ACE2. And then what happens is we don't have symptoms and we don't have replication and everybody is safe. Here's how the vaccine works. The vaccine, at least the Pfizer and the Moderna, is the messenger RNA is put into a lipid profile. This is a butter droplet, microscopic butter droplet that is put into a medium that is injected into your arm. It goes into the muscle and then the butter droplet then allows the messenger RNA signal to go out into the body, be read by our ribosomes, make the fake spike protein that allows our T cells to start being built to attach to that spike protein. So when the real virus enters our body, the spike protein is there and the antibodies are there to marry each other to not allow the virus to get into our body. Here's my main concern. My main concern is that I have run three vaccine clinics in three separate facilities and I am having a 35% response. Why? Well, here's the reason why. Our staff members and humans are concerned about all of these. And as you see, the biggest is the possible side effects. Well, I can tell you that they're not side effects. They're actually effects of the vaccine that your body is working towards. So you do want the fever. You do want the muscle aches. That is telling you that the, that the vaccine is working in your body and the antibodies are, are being produced. As you'll see, the second, do not trust the government. Well, this is because they thought it was rolled out quick. Well, the reason it was rolled out quick was because the messenger RNA is one of the safest vaccines out there. The reason we never had it was we were never able to find a virus that we could work with that didn't change quickly. HIV and flu changed too quickly for us to get the messenger RNA to be able to stabilize that virus. So what happens is, is that the, this is the cleanest mechanism. And the reason that there was such a quick rollout is number one, Pfizer and Moderna were paid lots of money to distribute at the same time and produce that they were making it. No other vaccine company was willing to do that. That would be a money loss if you were to, to make it, distribute and produce it at the same time. The other issue is that it's the cleanest because the butter droplet is the mechanism for the messenger RNA and the messenger RNA is out of your system within two days and it does not affect your DNA at all. The reason that these other viruses, the vaccines, the J&J, &J, the AstraZeneca and the Novavirus are taking more time is because their adenovectors or their lipid profile that has to make a fake sp spike protein through manufacture. That is where the FDA has to step back and look at every process. The messenger RNA is so effective because there's nothing, it's clean. The messenger RNA dissolves, the antibodies are made, and it's done. This is why the FDA felt so comfortable allowing this to happen so quickly and why it is 95% able to fight and make antibodies towards this virus. I advocate if you have the ability to get these two, to get it, because I do not know if the other three that are going to come out are going to be just as effective. Our second to last slide here is um, COVID-19 vaccine enthusiasm, and this is the percent who say they trust each of the following. 59% definitely will not get it, 
even if their own doctor says that to get it. 26% will not get it if the CDC said. So you'll see that this is the problem that we're having. We will not have herd immunity, which is 85% of all of, of, of us as Americans in the world need to get vaccinated to allow the virus to dissipate and not cause us to be infected. Now, one thing I do want to remind everybody that the vaccine prevents symptoms, but we're not sure that it will prevent infectivity. But as we know, the infectivity will be less if you have the vaccine than if you do not. So that is why we have to still wear PPE and we still have to get tested. So here's our mutations real quick. 1.4 million positive tests per week. We're only doing 300,000 genetic samples, which is why we're not finding all of the uh, genetics. The B117, which is in Pennsylvania now and over 50 cases in the United States, it spreads more easily, but it's not more deadly. And as I said, with the spike protein, the vaccine still works. The South Africa, Brazil variant, the 501V2, this is the one that we're finding the monoclonal antibody and the convalescent plasma may not work because of the multiple uh, amino acid changes, but it's still not affecting the spike protein, which again is only one protein out of 29. So at this point, we are very confident that the Pfizer and Moderna will work against these new variants. So this is the last thing I wanna tell you. This is an article from the Annals of Internal Medicine that talked about why the UK and Europe is going with the one dose instead of two. And they're doing it for three reasons. Number one, they wanna do it for getting more people to be vaccinated 50%. As of right now, America will not do that. Second reason is, is that they feel that if they can vaccinate more people, then more people will feel that they will be uh, able to be protected and that we could decrease the spread. But number three is very interesting. They felt that people will not wear PPE, not wear masks if they are 95% protected. So they felt that if you're 50% protected, you have more chance of wearing that PPE. And why do I say it's important to wear the PPE? This is the number one question I get. If I get the vaccine, Dr. Spector, will I still have to wear my PPE? The answer is yes, because there's still 5% that will not be infected. The other issue is, is that we know that you still can possibly have the virus, but it also takes up to six weeks to be protected and not everybody will be protected. So you still have to wear your shields, your masks and your PPE. So I think it's a very interesting article, but at this point, the United States has decided to continue to go with the two shots. My last slide. I thank everybody very much for uh, the opportunity to talk. There is my second shot and let's open it up to questions. Thanks, doctor. That was, um, that was great. <laughs> I learned a, a lot. Um, one of the questions that I have is you were just talking about. So when you get the vaccine, you could still be, in, be infected, you could still spread the virus, but you're not gonna get any symptoms. How does that work? So we know that through the nose that the ACE2 receptors can still have the virus. It's just less because of the way that the vaccine works, but it doesn't bind to all the ACE2. So you can still have it, but we found through the test through Pfizer and Moderna that we're not sure if you can spread it or not. That's why we're still doing more studies with more people and you have to wear the mask and the, and the, and the uh, shield. But we do know that it does not get into the cells and your symptoms and your infectivity. 
So you can still possibly spread it, but it should not get into your body, which is why we need 85% of Americans to be vaccinated. Okay, and you also answered one of my other questions through your thing. I, I was concerned because all the facilities they're getting, um, they're getting their vaccines and the residents still aren't allowed to have visitors. And I was confused to as of why. <clears throat> and I mean, that answers it. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, sure. I have a question, Dr. Spector, and we talked about this before we went on. Um, I had COVID the same time you had COVID, and I have the, I've had the opportunity to get the vaccine, and I felt like maybe I should wait because other people are ahead of me. Um, and am, am I protected? Should I get the vaccine now that I've tested positive? Yeah, great question. So the University of California, San Diego, did study people six months out and found that 85% still had antibodies. So if you had COVID, and I know we talked about the reinfection, which was the 90 days, but you definitely have antibodies to fight off the, the main virus problems that you would encounter. But it is recommended that all healthcare workers do get the vaccine as long as they are outside their 10 days of isolation, because we do know that our antibodies do wane. We do know that we are still interacting with our positive residents and that you need to be as protected as possible. The only issue would be is that like myself with my second shot, you may get a more side effect profile, meaning more symptoms because your own antibodies and the antibodies that you're making from the two shots may cause more of a response. And I did have a low grade fever and chills for 24 hours because I was so close. But any healthcare provider should be getting their vaccine within 10 days of after their isolation, regardless. Ethically, if you are not in healthcare, and somebody else can get that vaccine from you and your home working from home, working for an accounting firm, then yes, I do agree. You should wait the 90 days that the CDC does say you should wait. Rebecca has a question, Becky Schollenberg. Good morning, doctor. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate your time and thank you for everyone to arrange this. I haven't been able to get a response from the Office of Long-Term Living in regards to how direct care workers who you know, provide services in the home on a community-based waiver, how they are being notified that um, they're getting a vaccine. Thank you. Sure, so uh, the health secretary, Dr. Levine actually addressed this. So first of all, every health system that got vaccine is obligated to give 10% of their vaccine to those that are unaffiliated. So that's number one, I would go to your local, uh, your local hospitals and health system. But also I know Montgomery County uh, and I know Philadelphia County is offering clinics. And in fact, I think Sunday they had one at the convention center where they gave out 2,046 vaccines for healthcare workers that are not affiliated with health, with health systems. To go I and saw that. Yes. So each county is now getting their own uh, vaccine numbers and they are setting up these clinics. Now, the only thing I'll tell you is that Philadelphia, the 10% for any of the hospital systems in Philadelphia, they do not have to do that 10% because they got all their vaccine through the city of Philadelphia, which is setting up their own clinics. So I, I know uh, I know Premier has reached out to Montgomery County. And if you do um, prove that you are a healthcare provider, that they will vaccinate your, your whole team. Thank Dr. you. Spector. I was wondering how people got notified um, when they went to the convention center. How did you know to go there? 
Yeah, um, Irene, do you want to kind of mention that? Because I know that you got your team for, through Montgomery County and you knew about the convention center. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Sorry. I'm sorry. I, I'm definitely um, not great with technical um, or electronic devices. So we actually were very successful. We had our whole team already vaccinated through the Montgomery County Department of Health. Um, and what you basically have to do is you have to reach out to them and you go on their website and you can actually call myself or Desiree. There's a form that you fill out. They are going to ask for proof. So you have to either send in your licensure um, and they will actually set up each individual um, to get vaccinated. So that actually went on yesterday and it's going on today, but the spots were very limited and you really just had to jump on it. And unfortunately, um, it, it's kind of up to the home health or home care or hospice company to kind of advocate and push for your employees because there's just so much um, stuff that you have to go through in order to get the vaccine that, you know, one would be just quick to just kind of throw in the towel and say, you know what, I'm just going to wait until my doctor gets it. And I'm thinking of um, home health care workers that are not with an agency that are private hires that are paid through a payroll service like public partnership, uh, because public wow. partnership has had no, um, they're not involved in the process. So yeah, I was just wondering if anybody heard the rumor and thank you about Montgomery County. I'll yes. duplicate that in Philadelphia County and where actually I live. One of, one of our social workers did get vaccinated at the Philadelphia Department of Health and it was a fairly easy process. Great. Um, she just, you know, signed right up, but you have to go in and you have to be prepared to either show your license or yep. an ID badge. Um, because, you know, not everybody is licensed. Um, and they really didn't give us a hard time at all. They were actually extremely easy to work with. You guys, um, I knew you would know. Thank you. Sure. Give me a call. I can also, um, you, you might want to reach out to Lankanaw Hospital because they're actually, there's an email set up that you email um, their main um, site, whatever. And they do have a 10% allotment for, um, the um, non-affiliated health system, healthcare workers. Unfortunately, um, even though Rachel Levine, Dr. Spector put this out, um, a lot of these you know, health systems don't really have a plan in place. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, sure, so John, sure. John and Donna, the last slide had my email address and feel free to send that out to everybody. One of the other things that our RICB program or our CAT program is doing now is uh, town halls for any kind of vaccine hesitancy for anybody. So feel free to use that email. Um, everybody on this call, uh, our premier and um, Donna, I can give you my cell phone as well and anybody can call at any time and we can discuss. Uh, but I can come out or do again a, a virtual uh, town hall and answer all questions uh, about the vaccine and any hesitancy. Dr. Spector, can I just ask you one question? And you know, I have 10,000 questions to you always. Sure. And I just wanted to mention to everyone, you know, Dr. Spector has actually been working with uh, Premier since COVID, you know, outbroke. And we did extremely, extremely well. We had pretty much two staff members um, that had COVID. One very early on when COVID first started and um, my nurse, actually, one of our nurses got it, and it was insane. She got it from one of the caregivers that used to come out to see her mother. 
So we did very, very well in terms of prevention and Dr. Spector really put us on the right track. But my question was to you, they're now saying that Moderna um, is two years effective. How do we know this? And yeah, what's the plan? Is this going to be like a flu vaccine, you know, maybe every two years? That, that was my only question I had. Sure. And I can tell you that it's early because, again, we have to look at all 9 million that have been vaccinated and start looking at numbers. But Moderna has looked internally at their own uh, 30,000 that they've studied. And, and they're thinking based on history that it will go out two years. But I will tell you that based on the mutations that we're seeing and based on the literature that's out there, this is probably going to be similar to the flu, but we'll see in terms of, again, that spike protein not being changing right now by any mutations allows our vaccine and our own body to continue to have antibodies. But once that spike protein does possibly change, we will need a new vaccine every year to make sure that we can catch up to the mutation. Okay, thanks so much. Sure. Doc, I was Googling uh, some treatment that you, were, that you were talking about. Is that the same as Regeneron? Yes. Uh, so Regeneron, it's very similar. Regeneron, I think, is the, two, is the combination of the two. Uh, okay. So yes, there are two cocktails out there. There's the one, the, the Bamlanivimab, and the other two that are given together. But they work the same way. Uh, they are injected for one hour. And for our elderly, again, in the sniffs, it really is the only thing we have to offer to decrease hospitalization. Uh, the only thing, again, it will reset your time clock for 90 days for receiving the vaccine. Uh, I will tell you one other thing with the vaccine. Uh, when you're doing your universal testing, you may get a, a staff member, I had this last week, who had universal testing on Monday. We didn't get the results back till Wednesday. She got vaccinated on Tuesday and she turned positive on Wednesday. What does that mean? It means that she is fine. We'll still give her her second dose in 21 days, but those type of people may need to get either another two vaccines in nine in, in three months because of the effect of, uh, of the vaccine. But do not get scared with people that do turn positive while they are getting vaccinated. And the last thing I wanna tell you is that is not because the RNA is making the virus. They already had the virus incubating in their body we just didn't know it because they were asymptomatic. They got the vaccine and then they tested positive. That is another myth that's out there that people are saying, I don't want to get the, vac the vaccine because it's going to give me the virus. And like you said, I mean, you could still get infected. So you could get the first dose, be negative, and then get infected, you know, 10, 14 days later before you get your second dose. Correct? Right, because the first dose takes two weeks to work and that's only 50% effective. Uh, the second dose, which is 21 or 28 days later with Moderna, back then another two weeks will give you the 95% effectiveness uh, based on the studies. Uh, Dr. Spector, uh, could I ask just for clarification then, once you've had that second uh, vaccine, uh, you had indicated uh, prior that it would be uh, six weeks after after the, the second vaccine. Um, am I right in understanding that then I wouldn't be able to contract, but I still would be able to spread it, which is why I still would need to, the PPE protection. That is correct. Yes. And it's two weeks after your second shot. It's a six week process. So uh, shot one, then shot 21 days later, shot two. And then two weeks after that, you have your full uh, adaptive immunity set up. But and yes, as we found out that you can still spread 
This is the major thing. You can't, we were not positive that you still can't spread it, but it will not get into your body. But we haven't figured out yet that if it is fully able to not be spread. So that's why we still need to wear the mask and the shields for everybody. So that will be long-term there. We're looking at at least three to six months. Again, the more that we get vaccinated, the less the community spread, the less the ability that we can spread because everybody has antibodies. So that's why when we get to that 85% herd immunity, that's when I think we can alleviate the strain of the disease. Thank you. It's gonna take six to eight months because we still don't have enough vaccine out there to do 85% of the, of, the, of the country or the world. Speaking of not having enough vac vaccine, um, I've heard about half dosing on, on the news. Is there any effectiveness to half dosing? Again, uh, I will just tell you that the FDA has done for two full shots. So for any kind of deviation right now from any governmental agency other than the FDA, the studies are not out there and we're not going to be able to say anything about 50% or 95% unless we do the two shots, which is why the, uh, the European Union and Denmark and maybe even Israel is going against that, as we talked about with that last article. If you want more people vaccinated for 50%, you're still got 50% that's not vaccinated. So from an... Uh, United States standpoint, we are not going to do that from what I understand. We're going with the full shot and the two full shots to get as many 95% as we can. So a half dose is basically might be a waste. I don't think anything's a waste, but if you do, if you do want to try and get everybody to the full immunity, and I get it, we want to get everybody out there, but we do have three more vaccines, as I said, coming out there, the AstraZeneca, the J&J, &J, and the Novavax. They are different modalities, so we don't know how effective they are. But once they come to uh, being passed by the FDA, we should have enough vaccine going forward in the next six to eight months to get everybody. I do not think the summer is a very logical time frame for everybody to be vaccinated. So I do want everybody to be prepared for September. If we can get to the next NFL season without wearing PPE, then I think we'll be good. But I don't think the summer is going to be there. And Dr. Spector. Can you hear me? Yeah. One of our biggest challenges, and that was getting back to what we talked about. Um, I'm sorry, I forget the woman's name who was just on trying to get other workers vaccinated. A lot of the direct care workers, home health aides, do not want to hear about getting vaccinated. Yeah. That is because we could have literally vaccinated everybody through the Montgomery County Department of Health between yesterday and today. People don't even want to hear it. And I don't even know where to go, what to do. And you can't mandate the vaccine kind of. Right. Because it goes against, you know, a lot of, you know, religious beliefs and, you know, people just don't want it and they're allowed to refuse. Um, but the, there's such a lack of education and awareness out there. Right. And that's why I advocate town halls. I, ad I, I advocate the medical leaders in the facility. And when I say the medical leaders, I mean the nursing home administrator, the DON, and I also advocate anybody who has had the vaccine in these facilities or out in the community, that they be champions to their partners within each modality. So at one of my facilities, uh, we have champion CNA, we have champion nurse, we have champion therapy, and they go and, I don't like to use bully tactic, but they go and, and privately ask their coworkers, why would you take the chance of you bringing it in to all of our patients and even myself uh, without getting vaccinated? And I think that mentality with the town hall will start to educate that the things that I put on those last two slides 
are absolutely not true about the government rollout, about changing our DNA, about that I don't trust the side effects. All of those are not Well, it's more because true. it was rushed. You know, why, why isn't there a vaccine for cancer? Why isn't there a vaccine for HIV? Why just for this? It, it was rushed. rushed. Not enough, not enough information. So I think we are going to need the ammo to fight this because I literally every day preach about the vaccine and right. I can't get enough people to get it. Yeah, I know. But again, as we stated, it wasn't rushed. They just distributed, they produced and developed at the same time. And because the messenger RNA is only the, the butter droplet with the RNA and it disappears within two days, there's nothing else for the FDA to have looked at where the new vaccines, the adenovirus uh, vector, which is a chimpanzee, which is the AstraZeneca and the J&J, that has more opportunities to go wrong. And then the Novavax, right. which is actually making a spike protein manufacturing, there's a lot of process with that involved. Those are going to take more time. But any vaccine has gone through the same studies of the phase two and the phase three. But because this is so clean and because we had so much of it available, that's why it's out there. It was not rushed. Trust me, it was not rushed. Okay. Thank you. And I just think we have to message that. Doc, I know... Um... I know we're, we're going way over, but actually I was listening to a podcast recently and they were talking about that not being rushed. They were saying that the RNA vaccine was actually in development for years because they were looking at it for different things like SARS and, and whatnot. Do you know anything about the history of it and how long they've been working on on it and now they've just adapted it to Corona or to, uh, to SARS? Yeah, great question. I think it goes back to almost 2013 uh, with the Ebola, and I'm pretty sure the Ebola is a very similar messenger RNA. But as we know, Ebola, we did a great job of not having that come through our country. So I don't think it was advocated as much. So it is a modality that's been out there. But as I stated, most of the viruses that we deal with, like text, tetanus, and measles, we have a great vaccine already, and they don't change. That's why they're stable for one dose. Hepatitis B, also, we don't have to do anything because it's stable. The other ones that we talk about, like uh, the flu, it's so unstable and changes so much in HIV that we were unable to get a messenger RNA, which again is a genetic code to make one of the 29 proteins that allows our body to bind to it. So that's why we just haven't found the proper virus other than SARS-CoV-2 to allow this modality to work. Oh, that's that's great info. And I was really surprised to learn because I, I actually thought it was rushed too until I was listening to different things. And I've learned a lot just from listening to you. So no now, this is great. And I'm glad that you took the opportunity to talk to us and share this. And if we can get it out to more communities and, you know, just more healthcare workers in general would be great. So I yeah. really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, you're welcome. And again, I offer my services for town halls for infection prevention, because even if SARS-CoV-2 goes away, flu and C. diff are not. But look at what we've done with the flu numbers this year in every facility. I haven't heard one outbreak yet. So, you know, the, the, the question would be, what else can we do to educate? Because if we educate about infection prevention down the line, all of our elderly patients will be better. And I'll be able to spend some time with my dad and go to Eagles games uh, next year. Dr. Spector, um, would you be so kind as to consider revisiting us? Um, we, our network, Donna and John and myself, we uh, have this meeting once a month. So when things change um, or there's new uh, information and data that you'd like, you feel as though you would like to get out, 
please um, come back to us. Let me know, shoot me a text message and say, I think you know this deserves another town hall meeting because we had an amazing turnout today. Um, and I've had, I'm getting so many messages that this has been so informative. And I think that if you could present to us in the future again, um, I'm, I'm holding you, I'm holding you to it right now. <laughs> I'm calling you out on it. So um, come back to us when you hear that there's new information out there that we all should know because the response has been great. And I think even myself, I've been uh, so in, much more informed because you made it both um, in, in layman's terms and also scientific to the ability that although I am not a doctor or a clinician, I'm still able to understand. And um, so I thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. No, anytime. You, you know, I, I love doing this. I want to educate and I really want to help uh, our senior citizens get back to visiting with their, their family members. And again, I hope come Labor Day, we can certainly uh, get, you know, get everybody back to where we were. But this is a, an eye opener and a, and a change forever. But I'm available anytime for questions and answers. And again, uh, please do not feel hesitate to send me an email question or any confusion, my slide deck. I know I went through it a lot. I had a lot of papers here, but as every pre presentation, I had no chance to go through them. So uh, anyway, thank you for giving me the opportunity to educate.